What an unbelievable privilege it was this morning to wake up to a perfect fall morning and, and fresh and clean. And what a wonderful privilege it is this morning to welcome you to the house of the Lord. Uh, today is a celebration of family, and we want to welcome back all those members of the Houghton family who have come from far and wide to join us for this great weekend. And uh, we want you to feel absolutely at home today. Would you please rise and join me in the responsive call to worship this morning? We have been raised with Christ. Let us therefore set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As we come together as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, let us clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We will forgive even as the Lord has forgiven each of us. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, it is indeed a great honor and privilege to, to celebrate the family of God. And we look to our right and our left here in the pews and we look around this congregation and around this world and realize that we are part of a glorious family. And, and like all families, sometimes there's pulling and tugging and differences of opinion. But Lord, at the end of the day, we all share you as our loved, beloved father. And uh, we, we just thank you today for a glorious opportunity to be a part of something so much bigger than each one of us and something that can sustain us until we're all together uh, at the end of our lives. We thank you for this day and for each person in this congregation, and we give you the glory for all that we will take away from today's service. In your name, amen.
Amen. We give thanks to God for all the ways in which he has blessed us. We're so glad that you're here. Take a moment to share a word of peace, a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. want to mention this morning, among there are many things in your bulletin to, to uh, pay attention to related to uh, upcoming ministries, but I do want to mention that we've been blessed with uh, the gift of new life this week uh, twice, and it's exciting. Uh, J.L. and Heidi Miller had a baby, Lawson, on Monday, and we give thanks for him, and we also want to give thanks for Caleb Stevens, who was born to Jason and Kendra yesterday morning, and so we uh, rejoice with them and give thanks for the new life that is a part of uh, our church family as well as their families as well. We uh, are privileged to have standing before you the children of Junior Church, and uh, they are going to share about a project that they're entering into today and in the coming weeks. Hi there. My name's Andrea Boone, and myself, along with Heidi Miller, who's not here today because she just had a baby, um, along with the help of our husbands and a few of our friends, we actually run the Junior Church Program, which is for children in ages kindergarten through third grade. It takes place during the 820 service. Uh, The children start in the service, and then they're dismissed, and they come join us, and our goal is to take the messages that are being preached or or themes that we're working on and make it in and um, help the children understand the gospel in a really tangible way. Way. Our theme for the year is uh, unknown superheroes of the Bible, and so we're going through the Bible and finding different um, stories that the children may not be as familiar with. But in doing so, we also look for ways that we can be superheroes for Jesus. And so we have two projects um, currently going on. The first one is our children are bringing in their tithe money, loose change, and we are um, having them fill the shoeboxes for the Operation Christmas Child. So we'll be seeing how many of those we can get filled um, before November, I believe, 15th is the end day. But the other project that we're currently working on is um, we've started volunteering with the Bundle Up Buffalo program. Um, it partners with the Jericho Road, who works with refugees up in Buffalo. So I have a little bit more to say about it, but I'll let the children start telling us about it first. Okay, Jerry. We are going to help the refugees stay warm this winter. Last year, we collected over 300 winter items and then... Some of us went to help hand them out to the people who needed them. I help the little babies. I help the adults find the size coats to fit. We will be setting bins in the foyer and the youth room and we'll be collecting items through October 20th. Gloves, mittens. 
church in which we're collecting winter items, coats, boots, scarves, hats, blankets. And for every item that we collect, uh, we have a cityscape, a black cityscape up in the youth room. And the children are adding a gold star to the cityscape for every item we collect. So if you're curious how we're doing, go ahead and pop up there and uh, check out the cityscape. But um, the neat part about this is that our children not only get to see how many coats we can collect, but if you understood, we get to actually go on October 24th with our, these children and their families, and we help give out the coats to the people who need them. So it's a really neat way for our, our children to understand how to be superheroes for Jesus. Thank you. So how do you follow that? They were getting high fives up here. A little transition of mood here. A 14th century English mystic, Julian of Norwich, and a 20th century composer of sacred music, Jane Marshall, both renowned Christian women, give us today's prayerful anthem. Julian's works may be among the oldest extant writings in English by a woman. Marshall has offered the church in our era a multitude of hymns and choral pieces, including another which we'll sing later this fall. The title of today's anthem, Till and Tend My Heart, gives away the theme of our prayer, an invitation for God to work in the soil of our hearts like a garden. It's a prayer of surrender, even the words, I surrender all. It mirrors the great calls of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Jesus in the Gospels to love God with all our heart and soul and strength. But note the unique phrasing, heart, mind, and muscle. We invite the Father to till and tend our hearts, but just as our sermon series from Acts focuses on the entire body, the church, this prayer concludes... Show me today what that means as I move among a people whom you also love. And it's a prayer I need today. God bless.
one of the ways in which God fills and tends our hearts is as we are honest with him and as we confess our sins before him. So join with me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin as we pray together. Almighty and merciful God, we know that when we offend another, we offend you. We are aware that we have often allowed the shadow of hate to cloud our souls, hiding the light from our unseeking eyes. We have said unpleasant and hurtful things to our brothers and sisters when they fail to live up to our expectations. Grant that we might find that spark of love that ever burns within us, the love that you have shown to us even when we failed you. Fan the embers of that love until it roars again in flames of grace, peace, and reconciliation. Forgive us our sins and help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us into new life through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of all. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning uh, can be found in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 8. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? It is only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me and stand for the dexology as the ushers come forward.
Heavenly Father, never let our resources, never let us think that our resources, our time, our money uh, are ours. Let us always remember that they are gifts from you and let us find joy in giving them to your service and ministry. Bless these gifts as we give them and to your name be praised. In your name, amen. One of the ways in which we love each other is to pray for each other. We have the opportunity now to join our hearts and our minds in prayer. And as we do so, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers for yourself, for other people, for our world, I invite you to join me as we pray together.
Father, we thank you for your grace that has been lavished upon us. It's not because we are deserving, but because you are gracious and merciful. We hear Jesus call that uh, people will know we are yours because we love each other. And even though we so often fall short of that, it is our prayer. It is the desire of our hearts. And we ask that you will give us grace to be that kind of church, this kind of people. Father, we come today burdened about the needs and the struggles of our lives. And we ask for your grace upon us. We pray, Father, for all who are grieving. And we think especially of Bill Duzema and his family, the death of his mother yesterday. We pray your grace. We pray your arms wrapped around them in comfort and peace and assurance. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with issues of health. And we pray especially for Ted Hopkins and Evelyn Heil, Alice Brown, Florence Tuber, Mike Raybuck, for Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, for Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others who may be on our minds today. We ask for your healing grace upon each of them. We continue to pray for the world in which we live and people who are struggling with natural disasters, Nepal and Myanmar, for people who are dealing with hurricane, typhoons, and the landslide in Guatemala and so much more. We pray for your grace upon our world and upon people who are suffering and struggling, hurting. Father, we pray for uh, our brothers and sisters in places of the world where their faith is put to the test in ways that it's difficult for us to comprehend. Give them courage and strength. May they know your loving help and your protection. Father, we pray for our own nation. So much that disturbs us and bothers us. And again, another shooting this week. We pray for the people who are grieving from the shooting in Oregon and all those who are in a mode of recovery and trying to come to grips with it. And Father, we don't really understand but our hearts are broken that people would feel so disconnected from you and from others that violence seems like their best option. We pray that you would bring peace and grace and help to us. Father, we thank you that when we come to pray, you are always more ready to hear than we are even to pray. And you are always more interested in giving than we either desire or deserve. 
So pour out the abundance of your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace and strength upon us. And we ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who in loving kindness teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. To be your voice of hope and healing. 
Following the New Testament scripture reading, all children are dismissed for Children's Church during the following hymn. The New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against those of the Aramaic-speaking community because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. be seated. I think most of us would agree that success is better than failure. If we attempt something, we hope we're successful. And, and we perceive it that way because we believe that success 
leads to all kinds of good things and failure leads to bad things. And that's certainly true. What we sometimes miss is that success, while it it leads to what we hope to happen, it also leads us down paths that we wouldn't have dreamed we needed that we're going to walk down. Success can can breed circumstances in which what we value can get lost. You see that in businesses, corporations all the time. I suspect when the first McDonald's restaurant opened, the owner of the restaurant knew every employee, probably knew a lot about them. I'd be stunned if the owner of McDonald's knows all the names of all the employees who work for McDonald's all around the world. There is a disconnectedness that naturally takes place when things grow and success happens. And somehow corporations, businesses, try to figure out a way to deal with that. As we read the account of the early church, they've had amazing success. Awesome things have happened. Thousands and thousands of people have come to faith And it's terrific, it's exactly what they were hoping to happen, but a situation, at least one that we know of, has developed because of all that success. Because of all the good things that have happened, all the people coming to faith, the ministry that they had to widows who have no means to support themselves in that culture has gotten lost. They become so big, so many people, so many things to do, so, so many circumstances to handle, that, that taking care of some of the widows has been shoved to the edge, to the margins. And they are being missed and neglected. As we come to this, this chapter 6, we find that the situation has been brought to the attention of the disciples, and now the question is, what are they going to do about it? Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I have begun over the last few years to try my best to not take Bible stories for granted. Growing up in the church, you hear all of these stories over and over and over again, and, and, we, and sometimes we don't really think that much about them. They just become a part of the biblical culture. But I'm trying to ask myself more and more all the time, why is that story here. Of all the stories that could be told about Jesus in the Gospels, why these stories? And of all the stories that are told about the early church in the book of Acts, why these stories? Because we don't have every story about everything that happened. The writers have to be selective about what they, what they tell us. And so I'm asking myself about this story, why is this story included? Why do we know about the widows being neglected and the disciples of the church having to deal with that? If you read most commentaries and you you talk to people, a lot of times the the answer that arises is, well, it it was helping us understand the ways in which the early church was being distracted from its mission. I just read that this week. Uh very highly respected person, someone I highly respect, said about this story, this was an example of the enemy trying to distract the disciples from the mission of the church. Because what do disciples do? They say, we can't give up, we shouldn't give up preaching the word and and praying 
we need somebody else to do this. And the implication might be from that, what we're doing is really important. Taking care of widows, not so much. So we'll just let somebody else handle that. But when I read this story, first of all, that doesn't really sound like the kind of response that would please Jesus. But I also don't think that's exactly what's going on here. Yes, the disciples do say our calling is to preach and to pray. But that's not to say that this problem is unimportant. In fact, it is so important that the disciples say, let's find the most godly people in the church and have them take care of this. You would think if they didn't care about it, they would say, find anyone, doesn't matter, just pick somebody. Get this thing off our backs. But they don't. This is a really serious thing. Not only do they choose the most godly people they can find, they, they lay hands on them. This becomes a deeply spiritual work of the church to feed these widows. And I think that's significant. And I think the, the point of this story being included in the book of Acts is to tell us that the message, the ministry of the church was about all the needs that arise in people's lives. It is not just that we think about how do we get these people to heaven or how do we speak to their souls and we ignore everything else. It is about feeling compassion for people, period. And that means we care about people who are hungry. It means we care about the spiritual condition of the people we encounter. It means that we care about the mental condition, the emotional state of people around us. Because either we feel compassion for people or we don't. And when we see, we look at the, the ministry of Jesus, we discover that Jesus cares about the whole part of every person. And so he heals the sick. And he gives sight to the blind. And he opens up people's hearts to be transformed in their spirits and souls. And too often in the church, we segregate those things. We, we categorize them as, well, this is the most important ministry and that's secondary. But it's not. The gospel's the gospel. The good news is the good news. And God created us as holistic beings and God cares about every part of us. And the ministry of the church is about compassion. And the ministry of compassion means that we care about people. Every part of their existence. Every part of their being. We care enough to take it as seriously as the early church does. So what does that look like for us? What does it mean to have compassion for people? I suspect it will mean that we will, be, we will be nudged to care for people who may be like us and people who may not be like us. People who are easy for us to, to, to care for and people who are not easy for us to care for. These widows are being neglected because they are different 
Now, the, the issue is, and the, the passage tries its best to describe it, and, and the scholars find the best way to try to, to flesh out what's going on here, but as best as I can tell, what they're trying to say is that you have, you have widows who are, who are from the Judean area, from Palestine. They speak Aramaic. They are completely tied into the Hebrew way of life and thinking. And then you have widows who are from the diaspora, Hellenistic. And they, are, they speak Greek. They are influenced by Greek culture. And they even view the Jewish religion and now Christianity from a more Greek perspective as opposed to from a, a Hebrew-Palestinian perspective. I, the thing that came to my mind when I was reading about this was trying to work with people in, let's say, the year 1865, 1866, and you've got a group of people from Atlanta, Georgia, and a group of people from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And they've come together in the same place. And you're trying to help them. And they have different perspectives about this country, different perspectives about the war we just went through, different perspectives about issues. And trying to bring these different perspectives together. And if you are from the north, what would be your natural inclination about who gets more of your attention? And if you're from the south, who gets more of your attention? And I think what Luke is trying to help us understand that the disciples realized we probably inadvertently have been thinking about the widows that are easier for us to connect to. And we need to stop that. It's not that we do less for them. We just need to take care of the ones who think differently from us. And there are going to be people in our lives all the time who see the world differently than we do, who think differently than we do. They may not have anything close to the same kind of mindset about God and the church and Jesus and the kingdom. But we still feel compassion for them. I think one of the ways in which we show compassion to people like widows, people who are on the margins, people who are on the fringes of society, is that we become advocates for them. We become a voice for the voiceless. I I have felt for quite some time an uneasiness about the church being involved in politics. I, I think there's probably a place for that to happen, But it seems as though what typically happens when the church gets really involved in politics is that it skews our focus. And and it starts to become about power. And it starts to become about our rights. But the one thing that struck me a few years ago when I was at a, a symposium, actually at the Faith and Justice Symposium at the college, was that the one place where the church should legitimately be involved in politics is to be advocates for people who have no voice in our culture, in our society. I think it's probably hard for us, generally speaking, to realize how vulnerable you feel when you're in the middle of of our culture and the way things are done and we don't understand it. People speak language, speak a, a language, a vernacular that means nothing to us. I mean, we went through some of that this summer with some family health issues. And, you know, I, I spent three years working in a hospital. And 
as a, as a pastor, I've been in hospitals all the time, and I feel very comfortable there. But we were dealing with things that were so much bigger than us and things we'd never experienced before. And I remember sitting there trying to sort all this out, thinking to myself, I feel so vulnerable. I feel so uncertain of what the next step should be and how we should, should do it and who we contact and, and, and what do we even ask? What questions are we even supposed to ask? And it was overwhelming. And I got just a little glimpse of how a lot of people live their lives. If you didn't grow up with technology, it's hard because our world is, is focused and centered and so much runs on technology. And if it doesn't come easy to you, it, it's intimidating. And you, and you feel vulnerable. And as the church, we step in and we help people in those circumstances, but we become a voice, an advocate for people who don't have what we may have. So often, the church is accused of being self-absorbed, that we exist simply to keep the machinery of the church running. And yes, we have to, we have to do things to keep our, ourselves going and, and, to, and to continue to operate. But the goal is not we operate just to keep ourselves in business. The goal is that, that we, we do what we do in order to be an influence to people outside of us. People who maybe aren't like us. People who have different perspectives than we have. People going through different things that we may not really connect with. But we feel compassion and love. Of course, compassion like generosity we talked about last week is not something you can just think about and that's enough. Compassion is something you have to do. And we can feel compassion. And it's great to feel compassion. But if it doesn't move us to action, I'm not sure we've really felt the kind of compassion that we see in Jesus. My mind kept going back this week to the book of James. In chapter 2, James says, it's wonderful that you have faith, but um, if you're not doing anything good with it, what's really the point of your faith? You're missing, you're, you're missing the gospel. You're missing what the kingdom is about. And that means doing action is going to cost us something. It's going to be sacrificial. Compassion is always, always involves sacrifice. It always move, moves us beyond what is comfortable and easy and natural. It's fascinating to me that not only do they choose these seven men to, to run this program, but one of them, Stephen gets so involved in the ministry of the church that he becomes the first martyr of the church. Sacrifice is always going to be a part of what we do. Compassion and sacrifice go hand in hand. Because isn't that what we see in Jesus and isn't that the heart of the Father? I mean, really, what we're talking about here is, is having the heart of God. I mean, and one of the things that worried me about, about this sermon was that I, I don't want you to sit there feeling guilty. You know, it's like, oh, it's one more thing I'm not doing right. That, that, that's not what I want to do at all. What I want to do is, is to help us understand that, that being compassionate is, is simply letting Christ live in us.
It's, it's simply opening our hearts to Jesus and his compassion flows through us. It's having the heart of the Father. It's bearing the image of God, our creator. God has always been concerned about compassion. It didn't start when Jesus entered the picture. Just look back at, at the, in the Old Testament, just some, some passages from places like Exodus and Leviticus. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way, my anger will blaze against you. Not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. I am the Lord your God. Malachi, I'll speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, who deprive foreigners living among you of justice, for these people do not fear me. Isaiah that we read earlier, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And don't hide from relatives who need your help. I love the way that's translated. I was paying attention to the other version we read. Not even close to that. This is serious now. You can't even hide from the relatives that you have that you want to get away from. What struck me about that is that sometimes, sometimes the most difficult people to feel compassion for are the people close to us. We know them so well. It's their own fault. They got into this. They made bad decisions. They drive me crazy. And what does Scripture tell us? Be compassionate. Have the heart of your Father. As I said last week, generosity is a part of who God is. And God cannot not be generous. And compassion is the same thing. God says to Moses, I am the Lord of compassion and grace and faithfulness and mercy. It is who God is. He cannot not be compassionate. We're simply hearing the call, watching the church live out the nature and the character of God. I can... I'm continually going back to Henry Nouwen's wonderful book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. In the first couple of sections of that book, he's talking about how we are like the two sons. We're like the son who grabs his inheritance and runs and wastes it and is welcomed home. And we're like the elder son who stays home and then sits on the back porch pouting because his father did this for his brother. He said, we all need to to understand who the Father is, and to feel his redemptive call into our lives. But that's not the end of it. I think what fascinates me the most about this book is that when he gets to that point, he says, now now the real purpose of the gospel comes into, into play here. We see it. And the real purpose is not that we are sons and daughters who've been redeemed. The real purpose is that because of what God has done for us, we now begin to look like the Father. And we become the Father to other people who are like sons and daughters. And we take on we take on the image of the God who created us in his image. And a large part of that is having a heart of compassion like the Father. 
In fact, now one says perhaps the most radical thing Jesus ever said is be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate. Maybe that's why the elder son has such a struggle with his father. He doesn't want a father like that. He doesn't want to be a father to anybody else like that. He wants a father who will take his brother to task and kick his brother out of the home and hold people accountable and be judgmental, forgetting that he needs the grace of the father just as much as his brother does. See, we, we become people of compassion because we have begun to realize how much the compassion of God has changed us. And how much God has worked in our lives and how, how grateful we are that God has been merciful and compassionate to us. And that fills us with the Spirit, enabling us to be compassionate to other people. message of the gospel is that compassion is not limited to a particular group of people. It's not limited to a particular set of circumstances. It's not limited to one kind of action toward people. It is being compassionate toward people that hopefully, through the grace of God, draws them to the Father, as we have been. And we see the kind of miracles in the church like the early church saw in their experiences that when you get to the end of, of that section in verse 7, it says, and the church continued to grow. And the most amazing thing happened. Many of the priests there in Jerusalem became obedient to the faith. I, I pondered why that was the case. And I, I wonder... If it's because they listened to the disciples talking about God of compassion and grace and mercy who sent Jesus. And they watched the church live out that kind of compassion to people in need. Especially toward people who were not like them. And they thought, that makes sense. I see the meshing together of what they're saying and what they're doing. And I'd like to be a part of that too. Nothing changes people's minds about the church like seeing us do what we say. Fred Craddock is one of my favorite preachers. He died a couple of years ago. But I, I would walk through a blinding rainstorm miles to hear him preach. One of the best storytellers I've ever heard insightful, simple yet profound at the same time. He tells about when he was a student in college back in the 50s. And um, early 50s, late 40s. And um, one day in chapel, Rear Admiral Thornton Miller came to speak. At that time, Admiral Miller was the was the highest ranking chaplain in the entire military. 
And he, he spoke powerfully in that chapel service. And later that night, met in the dorm with a number of the guys. And they had chances to ask him questions and to hear his stories in more detail. And he talked about being a part of the D-Day invasion. And the horror of that day and the days that followed. And spending his time all of those days walking up and down the beach, taking the hands of wounded soldiers and praying for them. And going to the next soldier and taking his hand and praying for him. And the next soldier taking his hand and praying for him all up and down the beach. And one of the students said to him, Sir, you mean while the bombs were falling and the bullets were flying, you were walking up and down the beach praying with these soldiers? He said, yeah. He said, why would you do that? Because I'm a minister of the gospel. He said, yeah, but I think you, you missed my point. My, my question really is, didn't, didn't you stop to ask them, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you Jewish? Do you have any faith at all? So, I mean, you know, just you, you, all of them? And Craddock says, Admiral Miller stood up as tall as he had seen him. And he said, no, gentlemen, get this. If you're a minister of the gospel, there's only one question you ask. Can I help you? Can I help you? As I read this story and I think about the church, I keep asking myself, as the church of Jesus Christ, as children of a compassionate, loving Father, there's really only one question we ought to be asking. Can I help you? And as we, as we feel compassion, as we do compassionate work, as we care for people, love people, every part of their being, our prayer is that God will use us to be channels of life change for the people he brings into our lives. We can't change everyone. We can't feel compassion for everyone. We can't feel compassion for every situation. But I think if we, if we ask God to give us eyes and hearts and minds for the people right in front of us, the people he brings into our lives, I think we would, we would be working for life change bigger ways than we could ever dream or imagine. My hope, my challenge to you, to me, is that perhaps the first prayer out of our mouths every morning is something like this. Lord, give me a heart of compassion for others like you have for me. And help me to see them. And help me to hear them. 
And help me to feel their pain. And help them to know the love of Christ through my compassionate life. I think it would transform us. I think it would transform us. I think it would transform the world. Father, thank you for your compassion to us. We are humbled that despite everything about who we are, your compassion never fails, never ends, never weakens. Give us that compassion. we might be the church who is known for our love. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing the closing hymn.
receive a benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore.